We'll continue with our Advent series this morning. Isaiah 9, 6, or 9, 1 through 7, really. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we live in a land of darkness, and a time of darkness, uh, corrupted by sin. And even as, as believers, we have to confess that there is a dark and, and gloominess in the corners of our own hearts, and doubts plague us, and rebellion lingers. So we ask you, God, to teach us to be a people who, uh, like Isaiah says in, in chapter 8 of his book, uh, to the teaching and to the testimony. Because it is your word that dispels the darkness and your word made flesh has come into our world and uh, shown us the light. He is the light of the world. And so we ask that we would be people who would testify of him and that we might share in illuminating the darkness. It's in his name we ask. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 9. 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Praise God for his holy and inerrant word. You may be seated. Christmas as a holiday has kind of taken on a life of its own. Uh, there's, of course, a host of cheesy traditions and Christmas songs, um, sort of vacuous or, or mysteriously uh, ambiguous phrases like um, Christmas cheer. What does that really mean? I, I'm not sure. Um, and there are different emphases, the family, tradition, celebration. And, and some, on the other hand, have an almost um, cynical hope for world peace during this time. 
Think of uh, John Lennon's song. He says, And so this is Christmas for the weak and for the strong, for the rich and for the poor ones. The world is so wrong, and so happy Christmas. For black and for white, for yellow and for red one, let's stop all the fight. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Let's hope it's a good one without any fear. So Christmas, you can hear his cynicism in his voice. We're celebrating Christmas and there's strife and conflict in the world. And, and that bothers him. And actually, uh, maybe this is just my personality, but I prefer the cynical approach to the cheesy manufacturing of joy. I recognize the honesty in John Lennon's words. Of course, no holiday really should be the thing that we look to as the light of the world. But we talk about it at Christmas time. And at Christmas, it, it is overplayed as if there's this sort of magical quality in the air, a, a Christmas spirit. If we could only get a hold of that Christmas spirit, we would learn generosity. We would learn peace and kindness and acceptance and love. For Christians, this all kind of gives us really a good opportunity uh, to tell people who live in this dark and gloomy world about the light that's come into the world, about Jesus. And our passage this morning does that in a dark and gloomy situation. It directs the hope of God's people for 700 people, 700 years before Jesus was born to Jesus. That Jesus is that light that illuminates the darkness. So I want to go through this text, and first I just want to go through it and do a simple exposition, and then we'll kind of go back and ask some some more theological and application questions um, about it. So first, just an exposition of, of the text. He begins in verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, But in this latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So the first thing I think we should notice is that in this verse there's sort of what's often called uh, a prophetic past tense. He kind of slips into the past tense, but he's actually talking about the future. So we we see here, there will be no gloom. But then he, he goes into the future tense. In the former time, he brought them in, into contempt in the land of Zebulun. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. So here he's in this, this prophetic perfect tense. It's almost as if God has, has made it certain by the speaking of the prophet in the past tense. So how is it that there will be no gloom for these people who were in anguish? He says, in the former time, he brought them into contempt, and in the latter time, he has made them glorious. And there's kind of an ambiguity here, the former time, the latter time. We're not certain what exactly he's referring to, though we can get a sense from the context, which we will get into. But if you go back a little bit into chapter 8, we see something of the source of the darkness and the gloom. Uh, Isaiah 8, 19-22 And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? 
to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And then this promise here is on the heels of this comment about darkness. There will be no gloom and darkness for them. So their gloom and darkness is ultimately because they do not look to the testimony of God. They look to to mediums and necromancers. They look elsewhere besides the testimony of God. That is where darkness comes from. Whether it be worldly darkness, darkness in our own hearts, it's when we walk away and, and do not seek the word of the Lord. Now he goes on here in verse 2. And again, this is sort of referencing chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. So we see here a parallelism. This is important to the author, to Isaiah. And he's beginning here to get into a more poetic form. He says, the people who walked in darkness, who who dwelt in darkness, this was their existence. There was no light. It's like a blind person. They had no light. And on them, they saw a great light. It shined upon them. I think of uh, John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. We we see a similar um, thing. In him, that is in Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shined in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it, or the darkness has not comprehended it. Moving on to verse 3, um, we see here now, what, what is this light? This light is described for us. In verses really 3 through 7, the light is described for us. What is the nature of this light? He says in verse 3, And you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. And they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. To me, this harkens back to Genesis 17, when God promises Abraham or Abram, you, you, will, you will be the father of many nations. I will multiply you. This is this covenantal promise that someday the nation will multiply and expand. This is what he says will happen in this prophetic prophecy. You have increased its joy. Now again, this is in light of uh, really a joyless and frightening context. Isaiah 9, 6 comes in the context of this, really Judah's in the middle of, of north, east, south, west being attacked by everyone. So in, in the north, um, Israel, the northern kingdom, which is called Ephraim here, and um, Syria have come and decided to, to coalesce to basically attack Judah. And in the meantime... Edom and Philistia, which are in the south and the west, take advantage of this and they start attacking the cities of Judah. And then, and then Ahaz, instead of turning to the Lord, turns to um, uh, TP3, I call him, Tiglath-Pileser III, the king of Assyria. And, and he does help him, but he also requires tribute of him. And Ahaz has to cut apart the vessels of the temple to pay tribute. So north, east, south, west... Judah's being pressured and attacked on all sides. This is not a joyous time, and yet the prophecy is you have increased the nation's joy. 
This is hope in a really dark and gloomy season. He gives us a picture of the nature of the joy in two ways. First, they rejoice as with the heart at harvest. And second, as as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So the rejoicing is in abundance and the rejoicing is in victory, military victory over the enemies. Now, how does this... uh, light come into being? How does this freedom and victory and joy come into being? Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden, that is, I think, the nation or Jacob's burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Um, So we see here both an image uh, of the Exodus, the people under a a yoke of oppression, and, and they're freed. And as the, in the day of Midian, this is the story of Gideon, when, when God takes Gideon and takes the army to conquer Midian, but God keeps paring down the soldiers more and more, and ultimately they defeat the Midian army by shouting and torches, basically. And the point here is, is in the Gideon story, only God could do this. The point is that God is the conqueror. God is the victor. And he is the liberator of oppression. So all these people, northeast, southwest, attacking Judah, one day they'll be free. Gives us a picture of this victory in verse 5. For everybody, or for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel uh, for the fire. This is a picture of that military victory. I, there's a number of interpretations of what this means, but I think basically the idea is um, in verse 3 it says they're glad when they divide the spoil. So after uh, an army has conquered another one, they take all the spoil, but then there's this stuff left over like boots and bloody coats. They're going to burn all that stuff. It, it's a picture of the end of warfare. It's over. They've won. Then we come to verse 6. And, and verse 6 is really the foundation. It's the reason for all of the rest. The reason that there will not be any more gloom, the reason that they'll have light and joy and gladness and freedom and victory is all subsumed under verse 6 and 7. Why does this happen? And the promise is, for us, a child has been born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, for us, a child is born. That, that uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Isaiah 7, that the, he, God promises that there would be a son, and they would call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So the promises of this son, this son from chapter 7, will be born, and God will be with his people. And then in verse, uh, uh, the second half of that, that sentence, to us a son is given, I, I think refers to Second Samuel 7 and the promise to David that there would be an heir for his throne. Um, in Second Samuel 7, God promises David that he would have an heir eternally on his throne as king of his people. And he says in verse 14 of 7, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So I think here, this is a promise of not just another way of saying Emmanuel will come, but actually the divine son, the heir to David's throne, 
will come. And he promises that the government shall be upon his shoulder. I don't think that's necessarily, though it's true in a sense, that the American government or, or the Iranian government will be on his shoulder. But rather, when we have a government, we have a king and we have a people. And in verse um, 3, he talks about the nation. This is the people of God. The king of the people of God, the Davidic heir, will come. And he will bear that burden of government on his shoulder. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is great here. On, on uh, It asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. He goes on here and he says his name shall be called and he lists these names and it's been pointed out that his names reflect both his quality of character but also his qualifications for ruling. So wonderful counselor, this word wonderful has this idea of incomprehensibility or supernatural uh, is basically the idea is, is beyond understanding. He has a counsel and a wisdom that is beyond understanding. It's like Solomon, King Solomon. It's described in First Kings. And the people of the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. So this wisdom, this quality of being a counselor is really essential to kingship. That, that's something very desirable in a king. And you can contrast this king with the, the current king of Judah, Ahaz, who is exceedingly wicked, and he's petrified of this Syrian Ephraimite coalition. And so he flees to TP3, to Assyria for help. And then he destroys the vessels of the temple. He's a weak man. He's not wise. He's not a wonderful counselor. But the Messianic king will be. He calls him mighty God. Um, this word mighty has this idea of, of valiance or strength, especially in war. And again, he says he's God. This messianic person is God. He's a divine king. He's not just another human, though he is a human. I think it's pretty common. I, I looked up, apparently Assyria was more respectful of their deities. They didn't count themselves very often to be divine, the, the, the emperors or people on the throne. But many, like, like Rome, you know, they, they perceived themselves to be deities. That was a, a part of kingship. They wanted to have that quality. But really, there's one king who has that quality of, of divinity, and that's this messianic king. So again, this comes in this context of fear, oppression, uh, paying tribute, affliction from all the surrounding kingdoms, northeast, south, and west. Um, But we have this picture of this mighty God coming to conquer our enemies. And he calls him Everlasting Father. It's important to understand that in the, the revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity, the Old Testament is fairly vague about the doctrine of the Trinity. And Isaiah is not speaking Trinitarian language here when he says that the Messiah or Jesus is eternal Father. 
rather another quality of kingship is that the king takes care of his subjects he watches over them so this idea of of eternal um, kingship and and fatherhood is an idea of a perpetual care for the people of God I like uh, the way the the Westminster larger catechism expands on the one I just read from the shorter catechism Um, and it gives more of a picture of the fatherly nature of a king it asks how does Christ execute the office of a king Christ executed the office of a king in calling out of this world people to himself and giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them. And this is this is a very fatherly part. In bestowing saving grace on his elect, rewarding their obedience, correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good, and also taking vengeance on the rest who not who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. You get a sense of the fatherly care of, of the king, that, that he will care for his subjects, and not just for a little while, but eternally, unending, unending fatherly care. Then finally, this title, Prince of Peace. Uh, I always think of prince as kind of the son of the king, which is true in a sense, but really the idea here is, is governor or general or captain, uh, chief. It's a, it's a ruler, someone in charge. And peace, of course, we know all these different types of peace, personal peace, relational peace, peace with God, or in, in the Hebrew, the, the word shalom really oftentimes connotates blessing, which in this context of being a nation with a king over us, he's giving us blessing. It's really a cessation of conflict. Um, so Jesus is, as, as one commentator said, the administrator of all peace, or the minister of all peace. And again, in Judah's context of military oppression, um, that, that context incites a longing and a desire for peace in the nation. So this is really a great hope and a great person to put our trust in and put for the, this, the uh, for Judah to put their trust in. And now in verse 7, it says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So we see that he's the prince of peace, but that the increase of his government and of his peace will have no end. It's been said that, that, that there's no decline due to, like, like human kingdoms, there's decline due to maladministration or some defect in the king or, or enemies attacking. That will not happen in Christ's kingdom. There's a continued and progressively greater peace between God and man and man and man in Christ's kingdom. And here he's very explicit, before it was alluded to, I think, but here he's very explicit, uh, referring to Second Samuel 7, that this person, this divine Messiah, will occupy the throne of David and rule over his kingdom. To establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness, justice and righteousness, unlike Ahaz and the rest of the kings that they know, from this time forth and forevermore. 
So we have this concept in verse 7 of the eternality of the kingdom of the Messiah. That he's an everlasting father. That there will be perpetual increase. There will be no end. From this time forth and forevermore. So, in other words, I think we kind of ride this roller coaster of of good and bad. History rides this roller coaster of good and bad kingdoms. And that roller coaster will end. It will be a steady increase into blessing. That's the promise that we have here. So we see in this text that that light will break through the darkness. The Messiah will come, govern the nation with with strength, with peace, with righteousness and justice, and and the darkness will never have an opportunity to creep back in or, or return. I want to just ask a few uh, more questions relating more to application and and to the theology of the text here and see how this applies to us. Um, Let me get myself straight. The first question I want to ask from the text is, is, what is it that brings men into darkness and gloom? And we saw the thing that brought men into darkness and gloom was ignoring God's word. I think there's been a surge in popularity. I tend to think of, of our current climate as kind of being very naturalistic and anti-spiritual, but I've, there's really a surge of spirituality, of kind of new age or, or astrology in our society. And it's just paganism. It's much like he says in, in Isaiah 8, where they were turning instead of to God to necromancers and mediums, to these people who are in some sense in tune with the spiritual world, but they're not God and they don't have the word of God. Or another example of, of ways we can turn away. That uh, I see a great increase in a surge of popularity in kind of turning to personality tests <laughs> to test who we are and how we should relate to God. Not that personality tests are bad per se, but they're not a good source of the Word of God. And I don't think any one of us ever truly or fully trusts God's Word. We often turn to, to, to other things, to our own thoughts and desires. So the thing that brings men into darkness is that, is turning away from the Word of God Because God's word is what lights our path. And if we turn away from that, we turn into darkness. Uh, A second question is, is what is it that anchors us in a world of darkness, in distress, in fear, in doubt? And I think we see here a picture of God's covenant faithfulness. I think that's the anchor, God's covenant faithfulness. It's strange to me that in all the rebellion and, and just... Abject Ahaz burned his sons alive to Baal. He was a wicked king. So in all of that, why didn't God just crush them? Well, he's promised that someone would come from the tribe of Judah. He's promised David that there would be a king eternally on the throne. He can't go against his promises. So the anchor in distress and fear and doubt is that God will preserve his own covenant faithfulness. He cannot go back on what he's promised. So if we doubt, uh, we need to remember the things that God has promised. I often find myself doubting, which is absurd, but am I good enough for God? 
Well, of course not. But the covenant faithfulness of God is that Jesus is good enough for God. Or, or like you know, um, Lenin, Lenin's question: Will God actually bring peace to the world? Well, yes, He will in His due time. So we need to remember that the, the, the tenacity of God's covenant faithful, faithfulness. Judah and Ahaz deserved to be crushed, but they weren't because God was faithful to them. Another question here, where does the light uh, come from? Where, where do we receive the light from? And the answer we see in verse 2 is that we receive light passively. Again, we don't manufacture the light. We see the light. It shines on us. On them, a great light has shone. So we receive light passively. We are receivers of God's uh, light. And so the issue with either Lenin's perspective or the kind of spirit of Christmas perspective is that we manufacture a, a false light. Basically, I think the idea of sort of a, a, a Christmas spirit cheer attitude or of of we need to fix world peace is that you get in what you put out. You know, looking at the man in the mirror, I'm going to fix myself, I'm going to put in to the world what I can, and then I'll get what I put out. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that God sends his light upon us, and we look to him for light, not on humanity or on ourselves. Uh, a fourth question, how does God give us light and hope? How, how does he hand this to us? And really it's by placing us in a kingdom with a good king. I kind of think of the darkness of like a country like North Korea. It's just so dark and, and deceived. Contrast that with the relative light and freedom that, that we enjoy. We're put into a, a kingdom of light, a kingdom and far, far much more light than, than the one we have here in America, but it's a picture. We are in the, in the kingdom, we have the king, and notice his, this fulfillment of this promise is in verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The promise is fulfilled at the birth of the Messiah. There's still work to be done, but we're put in the kingdom. We have a king. As soon as the king is born, he is our king. He gives us these wonderful descriptions of our king. First, he's a wonderful counselor. Colossians 2, verse 3 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I got to speak to the middle school students this week at, at Riverside, and I shared this text with them. And that's something I, I told them is, you know, middle school is a very confusing season. And Christmas is a very confusing season because I recognize that for a lot of them, home life's not that great. And they may hate Christmas for everything it's supposed to be, and it's not. So they may be very confused, but they can turn to Christ, who is the wonderful counselor, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, for clarity. Again, he's our mighty God. Uh, Revelation 7:14. They will make war on the Lamb, 
and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. So we talked a little bit about that, about uh, the war in, in Sunday school, and, it, and I, I think it's right to point out that the war is fought not on grand scales necessarily, but on the day-to-day, and that we have a mighty God, this victorious divine king behind us as we fight that battle. Again, everlasting Father. I think each one of us has needs. Right? That's something that a father does is meet the needs of his children. We have physical needs, spiritual needs, emotional needs. Our king is not just this aloof person who takes advantage of us like many earthly kings, but he's a father. He takes care of our needs. He cares for us. John 10 is a beautiful picture of of Jesus' care for his sheep. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. How, How many earthly kings will lay down their lives for their subjects? He goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. He takes care to take care of us and to know us. He is a good father and an everlasting father. Finally, again, Prince of Peace. Um, conflict is never-ending in this world. There's family conflict. There's, in our country, in partisan conflict. There's world conflict. There's conflict in my own heart and being. Uh, if the spiritual warfare I spoke about last week is something that's overwhelming, that our, our fight is against sin, which is a, a terrible enemy, the flesh the seed of the devil, the the false teaching in the world, uh, we have the Prince of Peace as our King and Head. John 14 and 16 leave us with a great picture of this. It seems like John really gets this. Um, He says, in Jesus speaks to the disciples in the upper room, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then at the conclusion of this time in the upper room in 1613, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I think there's many uh, claims or attempts to usurp usurp this throne and this title of Prince of Peace. Everybody wants... What what is the basketball player? He changed his name to like World Peace. (laughs) Do people want this title? But Jesus is really the only one who has it because he's the only one who has the power to bring peace. A fifth question. How long will the light last? You know, candles burn out. Benevolent potentates give way to to despots. Verse 7 tells us that there will only ever be an increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end from this time forth and forevermore. It will not end. Jesus is never going to screw up as king. He, He will conquer all of his enemies. He will not become the corrupt and abusive 
king. Instead, he will reign, it says, with justice and righteousness. So how long will his kingdom last? It will last forever. And sixth and final question, how can we know? How can we be assured that this is going to take place? Uh, The first reason is it's already happened. Matthew 4 tells of Jesus going up to the north, the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, Matthew 4.16. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So the light has already come into the world. That's a, really a, a great assurance. And yet there's still remaining work to be done, as we said. And the second reason that we see in this text is that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We all have that one or two stubborn, you know, the stubborn family member who who just won't let it go. Maybe you're that person. I don't know. Um, But we that person, though, they may have certain troubles they get stuff done. They're zealous. They're jealous to make something happen. And at times they may be misguided, but they, they do it. They get stuff done. God is zealous, it says. He has that jealousy. And when he sets his mind on something, it'll happen. Combined with that, his perfection, his omniscience, his omnipotence, he, he cannot be stopped. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That word Lord of hosts is really, this was a pet peeve of one of my seminary instructors is Lord of Armies. He's the Lord of Armies. He is that military king, the Lord of hosts. Psalm 91.11 He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. So I want to uh, close with a few encouragements. A word from from Paul, 2 Corinthians 4.6 For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown light into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We we have that light. We should cling to that light. We should spread that light this Christmas season. And we should keep our eyes fixed on it. It's not a flame that will ever burn out. It will always sustain us in hope and light our path in darkness. And the light is really this coming king, this king who set up a kingdom for us, this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Amen.